Antonio is lying to the Duke, to the power structure, to hurt um, Shylock. So this one beat of power he has over him is this loan. Welcome to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for tuning back in today as we delve into one of the historically best scripts out there. That's right. One of the historically best playwrights for sure. We are returning to the bard, the great man himself, although some people think it was a woman, William Uh Shakespeare. William Shakespeare. I think this is the second the play. Third. That we've done we are we have Third. visited Mystery right. Shakespeare three times. We've done a tragedy. The uh, I'm sorry, that's not true. We've done a history, Richard the Third. I think of it as a tragedy because it's so terribly depressing, but it's yeah, really yeah. history. <laughs> and we've done a comedy, Midsummer Night's Dream, and now we're doing what is ostensibly another comedy. Yeah, but, but could be something kind in between. Of not kind of so, <laughs> and that's only really the tip of the iceberg in terms of historically uh, historical disagreements and controversies. And and uh, large question marks about this particular Shakespeare script. We are bringing some, uh, whoa, kind of discussions to the no script this week because we're talking about Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare. Yeah, Merchant of Venice with uh, just, as I was reading it through this time again, I was realizing just how many cultural lines are from this play, like lines that crop up in normal vernacular speech. So this is, a well-known play, even if you don't even know that it's well-known. <laughs> right. I mean, of course, the you know he'll get his pound of flesh saying is obviously from this. Uh-huh. If you wrong us, will I not have revenge? That's from this play. And there's, there's, there's a good number of, of ones that kind of uh, uh, crop up in normal speech. So I'm excited to get to jump into it. Um, before we do, I do want to take just a second and uh, thank all of our patrons over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. Thank you all for being a part of uh, keeping this show running. Uh, for those of you who are new around here or have been listening for a while, even if you're looking for a way to help out the show, um, head on over to patreon.com com slash no script podcast we love doing this podcast we love getting to talk about plays with each other and with all of you out there in podcast world but uh unfortunately this labor of love is not a free one there are some fees associated with it some uh costs of scripts that we can't find on like you know used bookshelves or libraries so uh it costs us some ducats <laughs> some does. ducats a couple ducats <laughs> <laughs> Not quite three thousand ducats. Sorry, that's right. it. we'll get there, everybody. We'll, we'll get to the three thousand ducats thing. in this play. <laughs> But some ducats are involved in the production of this podcast. So if you're looking for a way to help out No Script, if you're liking what you hear, head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. The lowest tier is $1. Uh, we hope that you get at least $1 a month of enjoyment out of this podcast. Um, uh, if, if you head over there, you'll see those tiers. You'll see another one at like a producer credit we'll give you at the $5 level. So head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we will see you over there. Yes, and again, thank you all to everybody who's been over there. $1 a month. Please, 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 if you're not a supporter yet, head on over there and become a supporter. 
And before I say now back to the script, which I just I almost did because you I almost forgotten did. that we needed. You kind of still did. I, I, well, I, I, mean, I actually did say it. I st- I, that factually, I did say now back to the script. Contextually, not quite what I meant. Um, we do want to uh, remind everybody we announced it last week, and we are we will be announcing it for the next couple episodes until we get there. That April is our themed month for season four. Every season we take a month and discuss four scripts around a particular theme and our themed month for season four is mini month that's right mini month and what mini month is going to be is we will be engaging a bunch of uh one act plays throughout that month uh we uh, one act plays are so awesome they're such a rich part of the theatrical landscape and in this podcast we just we have only thus far done full-length scripts so we're excited to take us a break and discuss four of the really great one acts in theater history and then perhaps set us up maybe we'll talk about more one acts in the future that's not to say this is the only time we'll do one acts but that at least for the month of april we're going to look at four one acts and this week, we wanted to go ahead and give you a heads up as to what those four one acts are. If you're looking for a chance to get in on reading the plays ahead of time for the podcast, this is a great way to do it because uh, they're shorter and, and don't take as much time for you. So the four that we're going to be doing is Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All For You by Christopher Durang. We're going to uh, do Far Away by Carol Churchill. The Shawl by David Mamet. And, of course, Trifles by Susan Glassbell. If you're uh, a part of the theater world, you recognize several of those titles, I'm sure. But even if you don't, those are four incredibly awesome one acts. I'm excited to read them and talk about them. I hope you all are excited to hear our conversations, participate in the conversations on social media, or at the least, read the scripts. They're short. Yeah, they're short, and they're really great. So uh, just get excited for Mini Month coming up in a couple weeks uh and yeah yeah get excited (laughs) now back to the script yeah back to the script merchant of venice of course all of shakespeare's works were written around the same time when shakespeare was alive it was many hundreds of years ago the earliest performance we have on record for this script is 1605 we're almost sure that that was not anywhere near the time that the play was written there are a couple of uh non-shakespearean textual references to an earlier folio of the work existing but at the very least the earliest performance we have 1605 like many read most of Shakespeare's scripts this script was based on sort of a combobulation of a bunch of other mythos and stories the story of somebody engaged in a uh, a loan that was going to cost their life was sort of a common myth in the world at the time of course Portia and her three caskets that's a famous myth of the time that Shakespeare just sort of pulled and made his own for Merchant of Venice that happens in almost everything you read by Shakespeare So that's around and in the script. Throughout history, the script has been performed despite its controversy. It, we think that sort of the earliest productions that really took the character of Shylock and 
looked at that character sympathetically were maybe in the early 19th century. Edward Keane um, was is an actor often credited with one of the first portrayals of Shylock as a very sympathetic character. That'll be important, especially as Jackson explains the plot for you, because Shylock is a Jewish character. And at the time that Jack, or that Jack, not Jackson was writing, <laughs> you, sir, are not Shakespeare. In my last life, I... <laughs> well, great. You can tell us who wrote all these plays then, because yeah. that, for some reason, that's an ongoing controversy. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> anyway, uh, when Shakespeare was writing, of course, Jewish Jewish people were not accepted as part of the culture. They were hated. They were scorned. They were stereotyped. And in many ways, they still are today. And so one of the running controversies of the script is how are the Jewish characters, especially Shylock, portrayed? What is Shakespeare trying to say about Jewish persons through his writing? And Edward Keene in the early 19th century is credited as one of the first really sympathetic performances of Shylock. And that really has changed the way the play has been performed throughout all of history, especially post-Holocaust that we live now. The character of Shylock is a sympathetic, tragic character, typically. Um, some famous actors that have been in productions of this play. 1960, Peter O'Toole played Shylock. Judy Dench was in a 1971 Royal Shakespeare Company production. Maggie Smith was in a BBC video production. Laurence Olivier played Shylock 1973 as part of the British television production. Sir Patrick Stewart, if you can believe it, has played Shylock twice with the Royal Shakespeare Company, once in 1978 and once in 2011. Jackson and I were talking before we started recording. What would you not give to see Patrick Stewart play Shylock? Oh my gosh, I can't (laughs) even imagine. If you've not seen a staged production of this piece, which it's not actually that surprising if you haven't, given the controversy, (laughs) uh, you can watch uh, an incredible film. The 2004 film of this play is one of my favorite films of any Shakespeare piece ever. Al Pacino is Shylock. He is heartbreakingly incredible in that role. Jeremy Irons is Antonio. If you want to listen to the script, there is a great audio recording. 2005, it was produced, and Bill Nye plays Antonio, and old Lancelot Gobo is played by David Tennant, a young yeah. David Tennant. Both Jackson and I, as we were listening to it, were trying to uh, see, is, is that really David Tennant? Are you sure? It could just be a Scottish person. Uh, but no, at the end, it is indeed David Tennant playing Lancelot Gobo. Yeah, I am. It, it was a good good recording. I enjoyed listening to it. It's probably one of the, the uh, good ways to engage it if you want to hear an audio version. Um, and even reading along, it helped me. I was reading along with the recording. It was a good way to consume the script. Um, speaking along with consuming the script, we do want to synopsize the story for you just a little bit to begin with. Um, this one is not the most uh, intertwined or, or convoluted of Shakespeare's plays, so I might actually stand a good chance of, of giving you a good synopsis on this one. Uh, <laughs> good luck. The, good luck. The main uh, uh, bent of the play is around uh, Bassanio and Antonio and Shylock. Um, that's the that's the big plot line of the play. Bassanio has figured out a way that he um, is going to be able to get out of his considerable considerable debt and uh, and and uh, live a better life. Uh, that better life is specifically around uh, wooing and uh, suiting Portia. Um, he's going to go and uh, try to go. There's apparently I'll get to the challenges in a little bit, but at the beginning of the play, he's like, "There's something that I got to do to be able to." Uh, to be her suitor, and but I need some money to do it. So he goes to his friend Antonio. Now, Antonio is a fairly successful businessman in Venice. That's where this play is set, hence the name. Um, 
and uh, Antonio and Vasanio are like really good friends. They they just like really love each other, and they're they're really great. Um, um, Antonio, <laughs> let's we'll get into maybe some of that, but like a lot of love is shared between these two. <laughs> oh, one of the great understatements of all time. They're really great friends. They're they real sure great. are really Gosh. great friends. Boy, they love each other. Um, <laughs> Um, Antonio, uh, agrees to help Bassanio. Um, we, he's, he's, he's very, uh, merchant wealthy. He's just not very, uh, currency wealthy right now. He says he has a bunch of ships out that are going to be coming back from various places around the globe and that he will be rich in two months. So, um, Bassanio says, I'm going to go and lend money from Shylock. Now, Shylock, as he's mentioned, is this uh, Jewish merchant in Venice who uh, pretty regularly lends out money to people to the point that he and Antonio have crossed paths before. Antonio has bought out some of his uh, old debts to people so that he couldn't... um, make good on the on the uh, punishment for them not paying him back. <laughs> yeah, so this is one of the important cultural uh, pieces of the play that you need to understand to really understand one of the crucial long-standing hatreds between Shylock and Antonio and in Shakespeare's portrayal of the world between Christians and Jews. Where Jewish people would lend money with interest, they believe, uh, based on the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, um, they would lend money with interest, and that's how they made their money. And Christians in Shakespeare's world, uh, based on their religious and moral scruples, never lent or borrowed money on interest. And so one of the many accusations Shylock paints against Antonio is that when people were going to come to Shylock to borrow money on interest and thus help Shylock make his living, Antonio would sort of swoop in and steal those people from Shylock and lend them money without any interest. So obviously they would take his loan over Shylock's. Yeah. Yep. So there's some bad blood between them already. Um, and yet kind of, uh, it almost like, uh, almost as if Antonio wants to really show how much better he is, he goes ahead and, uh, agrees to be the, the, uh, collateral against Bassanio's loan to Shylock. And that collateral specifically, um, gets negotiated around a pound of flesh. Um, he doesn't have the money to back up, uh, back up the 3,000 ducats. <laughs> There's our ducats. Yeah, we, we um, brought it back. 3,000 <laughs> ducats. It's an important sum. That's what Bassanio needs to go woo Portia. Yep. So Antonio puts, uh, literally, he, he gets, uh, puts his own flesh on the line. Um, and we discover later on in the play, it's specifically a pound of flesh around the heart. So it's a, it's a mortal pound of flesh. Um, and thus the saying, he'll get his pound of flesh. Yes. Um, throughout the uh, rest of the action of the play, uh, that compli- the complication of that storyline is that Antonio's uh, ships sink. Apparently all of them sink, we believe, partway through the play. And, uh, and he is uh, completely poor in money and in uh, prospects of money. So he has to go. Uh, he, he's, his, his pound of flesh is forfeit. Uh, the play climaxes with a uh, uh, kind of climaxes with a, uh, a court scene wherein uh, a big uh, uh, adjudication is had around this loan and whether or not Shylock will uh, collect on, on that debt. Specifically, now the, collect his pound of flesh yeah. from Antonio's chest. Yep. Like, cut it out of his chest. That's the risk. 
That's yep. That's that's the stakes. Um, the other important uh, important plot line that informs that plot line, and I'm sure we'll suss out the other small plot lines throughout our conversation. But the other important plot line is this uh, uh, wooing of uh, Portia that Bassanio goes off and does. Um, Portia's uh, father died a long time ago with a considerable fortune, and uh, to hold back the the hordes of suitors that would undoubtedly come to, to come to try to uh, get her a hand in marriage the, because her father she's not only incredibly beautiful she's incredibly wealthy yes to uh thin the herd of those folks as it were her father uh developed this uh three casket challenge a gold casket a silver casket and a casket made of lead um with a, uh, some associated riddles involved as well and um, so, I gotta tell you, if that's not the most freaking obvious test, <laughs> I just, how does anybody fail that test? Yeah. <laughs> I know, Every, different time, and of course it's a play, and the, and the people that you see take the test are doofuses of large proportion, that's sort of how they're painted for yeah. the sake of the script, but man... It's gold and silver and lead. If you don't pick the lead, good grief. It's so obvious. It's not even trying. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it is based in like this Greek mythology and uh, the Odyssey. There's a lot of Odyssey language in this play when they're when they're bringing up different myths and such. Um, anyway, Bassanio gets to the gets to the house eventually. Uh, it's clear that he and he and Portia had met before and that they're kind of in love with each other already. And Portia is really in favor of him trying to win this. Uh, so he goes in, he looks at the chest and succeeds where the doofuses fail and, um, <laughs> picks the lead chest and, uh, they, they become uh, married. Uh, notably his, uh, buddy who's with him, who is Graziano, Graziano, um, falls in love. I like that anymore. I promise. Yeah. I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he falls in love with Portia's maid, Narissa. And, uh, so both, uh, Bassanio <laughs> and Portia get married and Gratiano and Nerissa get married Whew. all in a day. Um, at which time they get a letter that brings Bassanio and Gr- Gratiano back to Venice for this trial that's going on. Of Because Antonio's money is all tied up in these foreign ventures on ships, basically. And actually all through the first part of the play, people are like, Antonio, it's a little risky. Anything could happen to your <laughs> ships out there. Yep. And Antonio's like, nah, they'll come back. And then they don't. <laughs> yep. they, uh, they, like, they all sink or are lost for a brief time. And so yep. he doesn't have any money to pay the forfeit back. So he Shylock is going to try to claim his pound of flesh. That's the letter that calls Bassiano and Graciano back to Venice to see, basically to see Antonio executed by Shylock. Or to fight a little bit, uh, Bassanio recently comes into a great sum of money. Portia, like, seeing the letter and, again, Bassanio's and Antonio's love for each other is like, oh, no, you need to go save this friend. Um, Here's a ton of money to go and try to pay it off. So he goes back. However, also, Portia and Nerissa hatch a brilliant plan to go and dress up as men and uh, show up as, uh, they're called doctors in the script, but were to infer then or or translate lawyer into that. Um, they, they show up to the court scene and uh, end up saving the day. Porsche's uh, kind of clever re, uh, re, uh, using of the law uh, outwits Shylock and uh, saves Antonio's life. 
the play ends with a very uh, neat bow tying denouement where everyone comes back and everyone the all the secrets are revealed between everyone <laughs> that that Portia and Narissa were there as lawyers. Um, there's another little trickiness with uh, getting getting both Bassanio and Gratiano to give up their wedding rings to them as the lawyer and the clerk. So <laughs> it's 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 a delightful little farcical thing. It's a thing. lovers quarrel, but lovers a fake quarrel. lovers quarrel. It's it's it seems sort of honestly it seems sort of trivial after. Yeah. <laughs> the intense, incredible, maybe one of the best scenes Shakespeare ever wrote, uh, Antonio and Shylock's trial by Portia. Yeah. Uh, the the lover's quarrel at the end seems very trivial. And then as if to tie a trivial bow on the trivial scene, Antonio's ships show up again. They were <laughs> yeah. lost after all. Just out of nowhere. There, there's, I think <laughs> there, were, there were two moments that I just laughed out loud as I was reading the script. But um, <laughs> one of them was... Uh, you shall not know by what strange accident I chanced on this letter Portia says this to Antonio when she gives him news that his ships have not sunk she hands the letter to him and is like you shall not know by what strange accident I chanced on this letter (laughs) it's like yeah neither do we where did you find this letter So yeah, the the ending is is very neat, but uh, the 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 drama of the play gets borne out along those plot lines. It's interesting. This play is part of kind of a tradition of Shakespeare's that you can find in a lot of his plays, but really very notably in As You Like It and Twelfth Night of a really uh, very clever, brilliant young heroine disguising herself as a man and triumphing, defeating, absolutely outsmarting, outwitting, kicking to the curb, uh, a man who is kind of a social outcast. Obviously, uh, in Twelfth Night, that's a play a lot of people know. Uh, it's Viola and Malvolio. But Rosalind and Jackie's in As You Like It are, are a similar example. And then in this play, Portia, disguising herself as a man, this judge, this lawyer, legal expert, triumphing over Shylock, who as a Jew would have been a social outcast to the Christian culture at the time. It's something that Shakespeare loves. He loves to fall back on this idea that a woman has to disguise herself as a man to show how brilliant she is in her ability to win the day. Yeah, and across the board win the day. Like you she wins uh Portia and Narissa win the day against Shylock. They win the day against Antonio Bassanio and Gratiano. So so it's it's almost kind of a like a a cultural subversiveness about Shakespeare that, you know, he he acknowledges the the injustice in gender roles and and kind of shows that once once these women dress up as men and are perceived as as men, they they are far and above the ability to of of the other men around them to realize the 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 aptitude of their arguments. And of course, there is a level of Shakespeare's writing, especially when women disguise themselves as men, that it's pretty hard for us to access in our modern theater because, of course, we have both men and women on stage, or at least in most cases you do. But when Shakespeare would have presented this play, it would have been a man called a flute, I believe. I'm not a historical expert, but I believe that's what they were called, who had a high voice, was typically a young person, playing a woman. So a man was playing Portia, 
playing a man <laughs> who yep. actually in this play when Portia's describing to her her partner that the the plan that they have to disguise themselves as men i think she even says like we'll be flutes basically <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep <laughs> so in terms of its com- i mean we we told you at the beginning that this thing is ostensibly a comedy in terms of its comic element that's a comic element that i do think is a little bit lost to us unless you presented the play as shakespeare would have with all men because there's this double layer of a man playing a woman playing a man and commenting on what it means for a man to play a woman to play a man at the same time. There's this, it sort of is a shattering of the fourth wall, although they, they wouldn't have known what that meant at the time. Right, right. It's a, it's a, a meta-awareness of, of what's going on in the, in the actual structure of the play and the putting on of the play. Now, we just said that in in some ways, Shakespeare is sort of subverting the cultural discussion a little bit in, in uh, across all of his work, especially in regards to women. Um, the women in Shakespeare's plays are incredible women, especially for the time that they were written. Um, in other ways, though, and one of the long-standing controversies of this play, the question remains, how subversive is this play really to the culture of the time, especially in its portrayal of Jewish people? Shylock is a... In, the argument could be made, let me say it this way, the argument could be made that Shylock is just about the most stereotypical Jewish villain that could have ever been written. He is greedy. He is uh, vengeful. He is mean. He is inevitably tricked by the Christians and outsmarted at the end. And in nowadays, what we see is one of the more heartbreaking moments of the play. It is sort of hard to imagine how Shakespeare's audience would have viewed it, maybe as funny rather than heartbreaking. Shylock is forced to convert to Christianity when he loses the trial. Those things are part of the play, an uncomfortable part of the play. The characters around Shylock call him a dog. They make fun of him. When Shylock's daughter, a, a part of the plot that's maybe a subplot, but I think is actually pretty important to understanding the play, Jessica, Shylock's daughter, runs away with a Christian, and the characters make fun of his grief. As yeah. if he's wandering around in the street bemoaning both the loss of his daughter and the money that she took from him. And that's the other thing, too. I'm glad you brought up that second part, too, because the playwright almost, I think, makes fun of him in his grief as well by how much he draws attention to the fact that he's a good chunk of him is bemoaning the loss of the money that she took with him. Yeah, there in, in one of his monologues about losing Jessica, he basically says, you know, I would that she were basically dead as long as the money were in her coffin for me to collect. That's uh, that's a tough thing for a character to say. And the movie version with Al Pacino yeah. cuts that line out. <laughs> Not <Right>. shockingly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the other side of the argument, um for Shakespeare to write a play about how evil and greedy and terrible Jewish people are, if that's really the point of this play, to paint Jewish people as the stereotype of a Jewish person, it's tough when Shylock has substantial monologues like this. Bassanio and Antonio have come to Shylock for money, and Shylock has said he will lend them the money, 
But, he says, Signor Antonio, many a time and oft in the Rialto, that's sort of the merchant center, you have raided me or called me about called me on my monies and my usances. Still, I have borne it with a patient shrug, for suffrage is the badge of our tribe. You call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and spit upon my Jewish gabardine, and all for use of that which is mine own. Well, then, it appears now that you need my help. You come to me and say, Shylock, we would have our monies. You say so, but you did void your room, spit upon my beard, and foot me as you spurn a stranger cur over your threshold. Monies is your suit. What should I say to you? Should I not say, hath a dog money? Is it possible a cur can lend 3,000 ducats? Or shall I bend low and in a bondsman's key with bated breath and whispering humbleness say this? Fair sir, you spit upon me on Wednesday last. You spurned me in such a day and other time you called me dog and for these courtesies i'll lend you thus my money yeah shakespeare is not shy at all uh at pointing out in stark and at least to us nowadays um pretty honest terms about how badly Shylock is treated by the Christians. That monologue, the summary of it is basically, you called me a dog. You spit upon me. You're actively trying to stop me in the public sphere. And now you want me to lend you money? Right. (laughs) Yeah. And probably the most uh, uh, stunning call out of the hypocrisy of the Christians in the play comes from Shylock as well later on in the play wherein he says uh, the the famous uh famous line is uh or the the monologue that he that he has from the play is the uh the the if you prick us do we not bleed if you tickle us do we not laugh if you poison us do we not die um if we are like you and the rest we will resemble you in that if a Jew wrong a Christian what is his humility revenge if a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his suffrage suffrage be by the Christian example? Why revenge? Right. So, this is the one of the famous monologues of the play. In fact, I think this monologue and the quality of mercy monologue at the end are among two of the best pieces of writing Shakespeare's ever produced. I'm not a Shakespearean expert by any means. I just like scripts and I like Shakespeare. And but this that's my feeling. I mean, this speech is typically called the hath not a Jew eyes speech because what Shylock is basically saying is uh, well, actually, the monologue starts like this. I'll just read it for you. He says, uh, Antonio hath disgraced me, hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heeded mine enemies. What's his reason? I am a Jew. That's the introduction to the monologue. And he goes into the hath not a Jew eyes monologue, which as Jackson just read you part of, the argument is basically, aren't Jews the same as anybody else? Right. Don't we, we have <laughs> eyes? Don't we? If you cut us, don't we bleed? If you poison us, we'll die. I mean, we are the same as everyone else. And if we're the same as everyone else, then you have to understand why our revenge is just the same as yours. It's not because I'm a Jew that I seek uh, incredible evil revenge. You seek revenge when you're wronged. I seek revenge when I'm wronged. And nowhere is this more clear than the end of the play. <laughs> like the whole court... Basically, because of this perceived wrong on their golden boy, Antonio, um, 
just turns the ship completely on Shylock. Now, Shylock is is pretty uh, led into a villainy by the end of the play. Um, his actions, he's, he's kind of given a couple instances to show mercy, um, and, he, and he turns them down. But yet, the, the, the showing of the, the Christian court under the Duke and their ability to enact revenge on this almost death of Antonio is very plain by, in, that, in that kind of climactic scene. Right. Shakespeare for the truth is he's a product of his time and there's no escaping that. But as a product of his time, he does something really incredible, which is he doesn't let you see easy stereotypes or easy things. Even, I think, to Shakespeare's audience of the day, who would have seen maybe some of the more things that heartbreak us nowadays, like forcing Shylock to convert to Christianity as positive things, which you know now we see is not so positive. Even that stuff, even amidst all of that, which would have been there for his audiences, it's hard to escape the sense that Shakespeare is painting Shylock as a villain because Antonio Bassanio and their Christian culture has made him a villain. You mm-hmm. can't escape the language, the accusations that Shylock levels against Antonio. Antonio spits on him in public. And yeah. you're shocked when all of the sudden Shylock is angry about that and wants to get back at him? Mm-hmm. I was I was uh, just in your introduction of our of our time with Shakespeare on this podcast. Uh, I was you said Richard the Third, and it made me think of the simil- some similarities there that you you listen like the the villainy, but this um, compassion that you end up having for for that villainy. I think Shylock is even more uh, worthy of that compassion than <laughs> Richard the Third ends up being. Um, but but yeah, there's there's the Shakespeare has this uh, fascinating ability to allow the two to exist simultaneously to allow a character to be a villain, but to be an empathetic villain, one that you can understand a complex uh, a villainy about them. Right. And, and, and let's not forget that one of the crucial things I think, and this is what I said earlier, that happens between Shylock and Antonio in the middle of the play. After the bond is made, and perhaps Shylock knows what he's going to do from the beginning of the bond, but I also think it's possible that this crucial moment in the middle of the play changes things. Shylock's daughter runs away with a Christian, escapes him, steals his money, and runs away, and Shylock knows that Antonio played a role in that, Mm -hmm. that he lied to the Duke to help uh, uh, it's it's Lorenzo is the name of the Christian who who runs away with Jessica, who helped them perhaps get away, and mm-hmm. who mock him for his pain at losing his daughter. I mean, Shylock loses his daughter, right, and loses her to the Christians who so hate him, who spit on him in public, who call him a dog. Right. I mean, that pain, if you're willing to let that pain play, I mean, Al Pacino as Shylock in Merchant of Venice, I would guess if I interviewed Al Pacino about it, he would say that he found a lot of inspiration in that because that is a heartbreaking moment of the movie, that mm-hmm. middle section where Shylock has lost Jessica. And you can almost see him make a decision that he is going to do this. In fact, the two things happen almost simultaneously. 
Shylock comes upon these two Christian characters. I call them S and S. They're they're Salario and and some other guy. Um, And and they're making fun of Shylock for losing his daughter and for being uh, upset about all the money that he lost at the same time. That happens. And then basically Shylock turns around and his friend comes and says, Antonio's lost all this money. And Shylock goes, good. I'm going to get my revenge. And so you wonder if those two things might not be paired in the motivation of the character. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that moment where he, he realizes he has some power over this person who, like you said, is, is lying to hurt him. Or perhaps there's a reading of this play that is uh, lying to help Jessica, who is in love with Lorenzo and could not uh, marry him, but, but we're going to lean in the other way. Um, (laughs) Antonio is lying to the Duke, to the power structure, to hurt um, Shylock. So this one beat of power he has over him is this loan um, that I think I agree with you. In the beginning of the play, he even goes so far as to say, what good does a pound of flesh do me? I'm obviously not going to collect on this. You're exactly right. The the end of Act 1 where the bargain is struck and the deal is, uh, if you forfeit on the loan, I'd take a pound of your flesh. It's actually couched in terms of it being a friendly deal. The idea being that Antonio, as a Christian, does not want to even borrow money on interest. It's against his morals and his religion, supposedly. And so Shylock sort of says, well, okay, I'll treat you as a friend. How about instead of interest, if you forfeit on the loan, I'll just, uh, you know what, I'll take a pound of your flesh. Right. It doesn't, it's not even worth anything. It's not like it's a pound of beef or chicken or, I mean, I can't sell it in the marketplace. It's not worth, I'll be friendly. That's, you know, it's not that big a deal. I can't. Can't even collect what would it what good would it do me to collect on it and yeah it's couched in that terms like i'm sort of doing you a favor even though you treat me so wrong now shylock could be lying through his teeth of through course, the whole right? thing but <laughs> i mean he even at that even in that scene he has an aside the famous shakespeare asides where he basically says i hate antonio because he's a christian he does say that that's a line in the play it's almost immediately followed by this description of how Antonio hates Jewish people, spits on them, calls them usurpers and all this stuff in the public sphere. So that's all there, too. But we know, even from the moment the bond is struck, that Shylock does not like Antonio. So it's possible he had a plan from the beginning, or at least the beginnings of one, that if Antonio faults on the bargain, then I can maybe get some revenge. And there's one more little piece of analysis in that scene that um, Shylock offers Antonio the piece to be cut off. <laughs> so so it, it's it's interesting that, that Antonio picks the heart, <laughs> the part nearest to the heart. Um, in that way, it's almost a reading of this play could be the like the uh, the arrogance of Antonio. <laughs> And what it's and and like they went to whoever the legal person is to to get this this agreement done. And Antonio's like, you know what? This deal is like I'm so confident of this. I am so uh, like uh, superior, morally superior that I will bet my my heart flesh over this thing that yeah, I'll that I mean, be I mean actually, Shylock in that original exchange does say. Uh, I'll be nominated for an equal pound of your fair flesh to be cut off and taken in what part of your body pleaseth me. But you're right that Antonio is just absolutely fine with it. Content in faith, I'll seal to such a bond and say there is much kindness in the Jew. Now, it's, again, we there's a 
certainly enough there to think that Shylock's lying. In fact, I even probably suspect that's true. He has at least the beginnings of a what-if plan. But you don't see him revel in it until the moment when Jessica leaves and Shylock turns to the Christians and say, you knew this was going to happen. You helped her do it. My daughter is gone because of you. And that festers all the stuff that Antonio and the Christians have done to him, festers, and now even one more stab in the heart. And even to to stab him one more time, there's what I think is a really heartbreaking moment when Shylock's friend says, oh, and by the way, uh, Antonio has this ring of yours, and he's like letting monkeys play with it. And Shylock says, that's the ring my wife gave me before we were married. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so so I I, I I think there is certainly grounds for what Shylock does. The that, I think that's kind of what we're we're building towards. However, those grounds end up getting uh played a little bit. I I think uh Portia plays those grounds out to their to their fullest extent in the court scene. Um she she just kind of won by the, I think there's there's two or three moments where Portia offers a way out for Shylock. That's right. And yeah, just... she offers him, I think, the like the big three of character motivations in play. In fact, steadying the court scene, again, I think the court scene is one of the best things ever written by Shakespeare, perhaps one of the best things ever written in the English language. I feel that strongly about it. She offers him, way back when in theater history, some of the big three of what motivates characters. She offers him a way out <laughs> based on reason. She offers him a way out based on self-interest, and she offers him a way out based on morality. I mean, those are the things that even nowadays actors can look to the motivations of their characters and say, how can I use what my character wants and these tactics to accomplish things? What do they want? Do they want things that they can understand logically? Can they use logic or reason? Can they motivate themselves self-interestly? Do I want something for myself? Can I try to get those things from other characters by motivating them by themselves? And morality. I mean, that's a a case study in Mm -hmm. how to think about how human beings work yeah and i think in the saying no to all three of those um shylock in in that in that moment i don't think this this play really functions on the the greek tragedy scale but in that one little moment there is something of this uh tragic nature about it like he's pursuing something to the extent that he's blind to where he's walk, what he's walking into. Right. And through the whole trial scene, Shylock's cry and decree is, I want the law. I want the bond. In fact, one of the really great exchanges of the scene, there's so many, but one of my favorites is Portia basically says, okay, fine, you win. You're going to have, we don't have a way to stop you in doing this. So why don't you in generosity, why don't you pay a surgeon, a doctor, to come and be standing by so we at least have a chance of saving Antonio's life? And Shylock says, is it so nominated in the bond? Is it in the contract? Do I have, is it written in the contract that I have to do that? And she says, well, no, but you should do it because like, you're a good person, because you, you're a human. And then Shylock basically, he's, like, he's looking at the contract. And he's like, no, I can't find it in the contract. Can't find it in the bond. <laughs> Sorry, I mean that's that's some yeah. really sharp writing, and that's a, a a great representation of that. That Shylock is so 
focused in on the bond, the law, that that's end up that ends up being how Portia's able to win against him. In some ways, that's what makes this scene at the end palatable, <laughs> because obviously what Portia does at the end of the scene is create a situation wherein the wording, the specific wording of the law is is being followed and thus is is robbing him of his bond. Um, obviously, if you're going to extract a pound of flesh from someone, they will bleed. Um, <laughs> and yet this is the grounds that Portia bases her flip of the moment on is that you don't, the bond says nothing about blood. So if you have any blood, uh, as a result of this pound of flesh, then you have spilled the blood of a Christian in Venice and all these bad things happen to you as, as a Jew for that. Right. It, um, it's, it's so interesting to wonder. And, and as an actress playing Portia, this is going to really impact your playing of the trial scene. How much of her plan is presupposed, is laid out when she goes in. She knows exactly how she's going to beat Shylock. And so she's using uh, tactics to try to not do all these terrible things to him until she leaves him no other option. That's that's one thing, if she knows what she's going to do at the end. Does she, through the trial scene, discover her plan and figure out a way out of this? We have some clues although it's really unclear we know that she's got like an uncle or some such thing that's a a a well-known judge and a legal brilliant scholar a doctor and it's a little bit unclear whether she actually goes to visit him and figure out what's going on or whether she just gets sort of instructions from him via letter but what those instructions are we never know and so does Portia know her plan? In which case, she offers him all these ways out. And then is the have a surgeon nearby, no, it's not in the contract, part of setting him up for this failure? Because if he's going to be so legalistic and specific about the contract, then she has the right to be legalistic and specific about the contract back. So it's a trick, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the linchpin around the final argument. The other linchpin is that everyone in the court wants Antonio to live. So basically any sort of way out that she gives them, they'll take it. Um, but but that, that linchpin is really important. And I think I, I agree that either way you end up deciding that for Portia, um, it will, will add depth to the character. But either way, it really speaks to how awesome Portia is. <laughs> <laughs> like she walks in and just has a complete hold on the legality of this issue and and whether she's on the fly adapting to it or sets up this trap from the moment she comes in i think that's a that's that, i just think porsche is really cool <laughs> porsche is amazing actually jackson you and i have played this scene i was we trying did, to think of where yeah, we had yeah we uh we did a uh like a little I don't know, cabaret, basically, of Shakespeare scenes, some of the best Shakespeare scenes for uh, community theater in uh, Minnesota. Yeah, Grand Ray, Minnesota. Yeah, we did a little cabaret of of the best Shakespeare scenes, and this was among them. And I played Shylock in that little thing. And uh, many, many, many years later, I look back and go, man, I was young and stupid. (laughs) I did not play Shylock in any semblance of correctness. Yeah, with looking yeah. back on how that went, um, yeah. Shylock is in this scene. 
He's a totally different person than he has been the rest of the plays. One of the uh, one of the things I think that maybe makes a little bit of a case against Shakespeare just producing a piece of anti-Jewish propaganda, basically, um, which some people have criticized him of. In the trial scene, Shylock is bright and calm and clearly motivated and clearly motivated by the revenge for the way the Christians have treated him, for all the wrongs that have been done to him. The vengeful Jew stereotype that would have been around then is still around now is subverted in the trial scene when Shylock's vengefulness is not based on just his his religion or his persona or his uh, ethnicity. It's based on a clear and a very explicit set of things that have been done to him just as it would be for anyone else. And based on the the primacy of the law in in Venice, like that's a big the, the the whole structure of this scene is is Shylock saying your law is worth nothing if 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 you can't support this to the end if you can't if you can't honor this bond that the law of Venice gives me the right to collect on. Well, and interestingly, you know, the focus on the law is also a part of the Jewishness of the play and of the of the character and in some ways maybe is an argument for Shakespeare simply producing a play that's the product of his time because what are the Jewish what does the Jewish character in this play want the law the Torah the sure, sort of sure. the, the centerpiece of the Jewish faith or at least as Shakespeare might have understood it and what do the Christians claim that they want mercy you know right. not the law uh, the subverting <laughs> of the law in favor of great mercy and love, I'm pretty, uh, which pretty is sure. you know a stereotype of the Christian religion, maybe in, in opposite, or at least a propaganda stereotype of the Christian religion as being better than the Jewish religion. I'm pretty sure Gradiano says exactly that to the Duke, like just this once, take the law into your own hands to do yeah, uh, no, it, a little Bassanio, evil, like rest, rest the law, break the law this one time to do good over evil. And Portia, as the judge, says, no, no, no you, you, can't, you can't, you can't really, you can't <laughs> no. really do that. What's interesting though is that. For all the Christian cries of mercy, and Portia's The Quality of Mercy speech maybe is my favorite Shakespeare speech ever. There's one in Measure for Measure I quite like too, but this one might be my favorite Shakespeare speech ever. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It's a beautiful speech about why mercy is important. Why mercy is the fulfillment of justice and the law. Beautiful. If you're a religious person of any faith, read the speech. You could almost write any kind of a religious speech or sermon on that that Shakespeare moment. It's so good. But for all of that talk, they are far from merciful oh, no, to Mr. Brutal. Shylock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they are brutal at the end of the play. Um, Antonio is the only one, I think. The Duke supposedly gives him his life. But again, this is all based on a quick reversal by Portia that is based on a technicality of blood. Um, and, and and the Duke just like, the Duke says, I'll spare you your life, but your everything is forfeit, basically. You're like, you don't, you don't have anything anymore. Half your life is for, for, half your life and goods are forfeit to Antonio, half to the state. That's it. 
Right. And so the merciful argument, you're right, is there. That The Duke immediately says, Shylock, you don't even have to beg for your life. I'm going to show you how superior Christianity is to Judaism. His his idea is not mine. By by offering you mercy, supposedly. It's not a very merciful mercy. Not, not really. But even the element of mercy that is there, that we're not going to kill you, we're not even going to make you beg not to die, is subverted in two ways. One, Graciano, through the whole scene, is like, don't let him off! kill him <laughs> yeah. hang him i'm a christian but don't let him go go yeah. hang this guy and secondly once antonio suggests that shylock has to become a christian the duke says hey wait you're right i'll tell you what i'm gonna rescind my my offering you any mercy and my letting you live unless you convert right <laughs> yeah yeah. They are not paragons of mercy by any means. Um but 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 that scene I think uh kind of shows shows off one one well, the the other big thing about Shylock going into this is he's all alone in there. Um he 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 is so committed to this and to this this attempt at what he perceives as justice by the end of the play trying trying to have justice for a long list of grievances and now a specific grievance that he has power over and into that space he he goes um he's he's crumpled by the end and alone and surrounded by all these quote unquote merciful folk and um and it turns i think antonio is the only other person in the room that you could maybe have an argument grants some mercy, uh, basically from the moment of uh, turning from the moment of death at the hands of Shylock to saying, you keep you my half of whatever you have. And when you die, give it to Lorenzo and convert to Christianity. Um, that yeah, is, he, he sort of sort imagines of this odd thing where like, the the money that Shylock now owes him for trying to kill him is going to be basically an interest-free loan. Wink, uh-huh. wink, again, back to that interest uh, controversy between the Christians and the Jews. is going to be basically an interest-free loan, which upon your death, you will have to pass on to your daughter, who's now a Christian. She's converted and been baptized and all that. Oh, and by the way, you have to go be baptized. Yeah, yeah. Now wonder, that that's I mean that's the part I think nowadays that is most uncomfortable about the play. I think some of the charges leveled against it may be unfounded if not for that. I mean yeah. that that's a hard thing to get around. The the quote unquote villain, I, I actually think you could even make a case he's really more of an anti hero. He he is maybe even the protagonist of the play in some ways. Um even if you make that best case, he's thwarted in the end and forced to convert religions. And it's it's not treated sympathetically by the play. Like, oh, Shylock, what a bummer. I mean, yeah, you could produce it that way. In fact, the movie with Al Pacino really does do a great job with making you feel for Shylock that he's going to have to do that. Um, but that's not necessarily in the text. That's a modern-day reinterpretation of the moment. Yeah, it's a victory moment at the end of the play, the way it's written. Uh, they get him They get him out of the room. He agrees. He consents. He's going to sign the deed, and he leaves. And he's gone. He's gone at the end of the play. You he never come see back. him again in the text. Yeah. And, it, and, and not to, like, harp on this whole Greek tragedy structure thing, but that's another beat that maybe makes him a tragic hero. He leaves the world punished for what uh, his, his tragic flood made him blind to, and the world... The world that Shakespeare has written is better off for it. All the other characters that have been floating around in this delightful love story the whole play um, 
are better off. They go back home. Lorenzo and Jessica get his house and all of his uh, land or all of his wealth at his debt. And the world goes on without him. He never returns. It, it is sort of reminiscent of like an Oedipus moment, right? Yeah. Instead of his eyes being torn out of his head or instead of Creon stumbling on with the body of his son and, and realizing what all this has led to, Shylock is forced to hand over his money and his faith and stumbles away in that punishment, and the world rights itself. And that's an uncomfortable part of the play. It's it, it, That's a hard part of the play, unless you're willing to do the work, which I think a modern-day production probably has the responsibility to do, of being sympathetic to the character in the grief of that moment, then it's it's uncomfortable that the, the Christians manage to do that to him at the end, force him to do that. One thing that I think is important, perhaps, about, and, and Jackson and I are not historians. I, I actually have liked this play for a long time, especially because of some of the really, really strong scenes in it. Um, and so I, I've, I've been thinking and reading essays and reviews about the play for a while. And one of the common consensus that I've found is that in Shakespeare's society at the time, there actually really weren't any Jewish people. Jewish people were expelled from the place where Shakespeare would have been living and working and doing his work. And so Shakespeare would not have known any Jewish people. And so he was writing just based on stereotype, just based on what he'd heard from other people. And that if you live into that world, he's imagined quite a human character into the stereotyping. And what is lacking there is maybe a real understanding of a Jewish person and of the Jewish faith. But it's hard to fault Shakespeare for not having that, given that there were not any Jewish people around him. Yeah, where where he where he's kind of closed off from that society and from those people to try to it, it is it is an admirable attempt to to try to make a, a a full character based on based on either hearsay or like you know a, a chance meeting somewhere like you can imagine something something like that happening. But yeah, it's it's a it's a compelling character that he's written and one that has been poured into by theater and theater artists for centuries to try to to suss out the 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 uh, identifiableness of this character. The other best answer, at least as far as some of the scholarly consensus is concerned to the charges of anti-Semitism in the play, is to read other plays with Jewish characters from the time. And, uh, you know, they're nothing like Shylock. They're, some of the stereotyping is there, the love of money, the greed, the vengefulness, but the humanness is not there. And one of the best, most sort of honest to both sides uh, scholarly essays that I've read, I read it a couple years ago, so I'm just trying to sort of remember what I read. The, the summary was basically this. If Shakespeare had wanted to write a countercultural protest against the mistreatment of Jewish people at the time, he should have done a better job. He would yeah. have been more explicit about it if that was what he was after. So it's almost surely not what he was after. However, if he was meaning to write some sort of uh, miss, uh, you know, some sort of uh, Christian propaganda against the evils of Judaism, he should have done a better job, right? Right. He would have been more <laughs> explicit about it. This play lives in the gray area between those two. Yeah. Yep. We're we're coming to the end of our time here. It's kind of turned into a play about uh, or a podcast about Shylock, which I'm not sorry about at all because it's not he is, shocking. It's it's yeah. a major part of the play. Yeah, well, maybe we just have a minute or two left, Jackson. Let's talk about the weirdness of the end of this play yeah. and the odd sort of comedy couching of everything, romantic 
odd, uh, mysterious end. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, if I if I had done my research a little bit more, I know if I were to say this with any sort of authority, but it's almost like Shakespeare went on a like a school trip to Venice and just like told a <laughs> bunch of stories about Venice in a couple of his plays and the goings on that happened there. Um, the the extra scenes of this play, I thought, are all really fun and interesting and 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 necessary for the entwining of this play. We talked a little bit about David Tennant's character from the uh from the uh, recorded the version that we listened yeah. to. Yeah, that uh Lancelot and he's this like weird character. He's kind of a Falstaff, a fool. Um yeah, he's called he's... a clown in the in the stage directions that we have. Shakespeare doesn't give us many and who knows how many of them were his, but he is yeah. called a clown. But he's a necessary clown in this play. Like, he drives the action of the play. And all the way to the end of the play, where we have this uh, this uh, complicated kind of costume uh, show by Portia and Nerissa at the end of the play, and the reveal at the end, this kind of uh, funny trap that they set for their husbands around the rings that they give away, it kind of leaves you with this... Uh, this uh again the world is is gonna be okay at the end of the play like the world is going to move on these all there's like i think three young couples at the end of the play in 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 this house and uh and they're all you know gonna move on and it's gonna be okay the ships come back for antonio and it's gonna be all right it it ties it up in a bow but the journey that you got there i think maybe makes the bow kind of worth it it's (laughs) odd i think uh so you have this great trial scene this wonderful case study in great writing powerful wills colliding in a, in a way that only one can win and there's incredible speeches incredible tactics these great forces collide and someone succeeds and tragically someone is punished for his wrongs and he stumbles out of the court and then uh, Portia and Nerissa, disguised as men, trick Bassanio and Graciano into giving away their wedding rings, and so uh, which they had promised not never to give away. And so the last act of the play is that they come back to Belmont, where Portia lives, bringing Antonio, celebrating that he's not dead. And Portia and Nerissa basically say, "What about those rings you promised not to give away? How about <laughs> yeah. those?" Mm? Yeah. And they trick and just basically mess with. Uh, caused Bassanio and Graciano just a ton of like, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I didn't know. I said, I, you listen, it's not that big a deal, blah, 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 blah. And it's it's totally romantic comedy. And in the end, Portia and Nerissa reveal that they were the clerks all along and they all go off to enjoy their wedding night. Yep. Uh, literally. Yep. <laughs> that's how the play ends. That's how it uh, ends. That's and how Antonio it ends. And Ships comes in. It is... Nowadays, seeing Shylock as a sympathetic anti-hero kind of character, it's hard to see his tragic downfall. It's hard to see the Oedipus-like downfall and then go on to like the end of like Love Actually or something. Right. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm supposed to laugh and enjoy all these lovers together in this room, and my heart's still bleeding for Shylock, who is so mistreated who and and so wronged in the play, but also did wrong this gray moral pain that I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I i mean, I don't know if there's a solve for it. I think that's just how the play ends. <laughs> I, mean, it's, you, it's, I mean, the productions throughout history have cut Act 5. That's yeah. not, I, I don't think that's a responsible choice. It's, I don't want to prescribe any moral uh, things on other directors or production teams. That is, I would never even consider that 
as a potential choice for this play. I think you got to deal with the text that you have in a lot yeah. of ways. And Act 5 is there, and there's some good writing in it. Some really fun character disguises and lovers' quarrels that make up so much of what Shakespeare wrote. It is mm-hmm. there in this play. It's a payoff for so much of what has happened throughout the story. And there's good wordplay in it. Like, there's there's really intricate wordplay around them sleeping with the doctor and the clerk. Uh, Portia and Nerissa both claim that they slept with the doctor and the clerk. And, of course, they are the doctor and the clerk. Yeah, it's so, like it's, it's wordplay in that they're like, I went to bed with the doctor. Yeah. Which is just like, I went to bed with myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So yeah, it's 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 still a masterful scene. I think it's just uh, so uh, juxtaposed by especially, what we just experienced. Especially nowadays, I think yeah. it is. Um, that's probably all the time we have. In all There's, Shakespeare yeah. plays, they're long, they're incredible. We could not have quoted every incredible line. There are so many good lines in this play. That's why I've always had a an affection for it. I just think the writing in this play is so good. Mm-hmm. And it's... It, it Look, it's a controversial play. It's hard to know how Shakespeare's audiences would have interpreted it. Um, I think nowadays it has potential to really present the plight of people who are mistreated and the ways in which when you mistreat someone, you cause your own enemy to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's just f- full to the gills with like good scenes for for partners it's a great scene for finding acting scenes from there's a lot of motivation for each of these characters and if you read the whole play that's it's a well laid out beat for all of them like the their motivation is clear throughout they build towards it so it's 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 a lot it's there's there's a lot in it that uh, again we did not get to talk about but uh if you but, read or watch nothing else find a way to read or listen to or watch the trial scene it is yeah. some of the best of Shakespeare. It is up there with that great scene in Richard III between Richard III and Anne. I mean, it's it's that good. Or or the great scenes at the end of Hamlet where everything comes crashing down. It is right amidst some of the best writing he's ever done. The trial mm-hmm. scene is amazing. Yeah. So when you read it, when you watch it, when you listen to it or interact with the play in any way, and you want to have someone to have a conversation with, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or Gmail, uh, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com, and the username for all the social media is at noscriptpodcast. We'd love to keep talking about this play. There's so much more to talk about, and we love your perspective on us, so... Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking with you. And if you want to recommend this podcast to folks, that's a great way to help support the show, to keep this listenership growing. You can send them to Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Podbean, where we're hosted. We also post a link to the new episode every Monday on Facebook. For those of you who still use Facebook, we're there. That's an easy way to find the new episode every week. So until next week, when we're talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script. We'll see ya.